so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the digital public square. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Glad, an associate professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary, and we talk about biblical theology and the image of God. Dr. Glad earned his PhD from Wheaton College, and prior to joining the RTS faculty, he served as an adjunct faculty member at Wheaton. He taught New Testament exegesis and interpretation, Greek, and introductory courses on the Old and New Testaments. In addition to his work at RTS, Dr. Glad has been a member of the editorial board for the online journal Familios since 2019. He's the author of numerous works and also serves as a series editor for a new series called Essential Studies in Biblical Theology, which includes his latest work, From Adam and Israel to the Church, A Biblical Theology of the People of God. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Glad, thank you so much for joining us today on the Digital Public Square. As we get started, I want to hear a little bit about your background. What got you started out on this scholarly journey and kind of what was your interest in biblical scholarship and specifically in biblical theology? Yeah, great question, Jason. You know, it's funny. I don't really think of myself as a scholar per se. I, I really don't. I view myself as somebody who likes God's Word and likes to talk about it. And that's helpful in sort of tracking my journey. I grew up in a very conservative Christian home on the fundamentalist, dispensational Baptist side of the equation. And I graduated from I spent my first two years at Bob Jones University. Then I graduated from the Master's College. It was then known as the Master's College. And then I did an MA and PhD at Wheaton College. And so sort of over time, I mean, I, I accepted Christ in my heart, if you want to think of it like that, when I was five. And I accepted Calvin in my heart when I was in college there at Master's College. And so I started sort of working within the Reformed tradition when I went into grad school. And it was really at Wheaton College when... I took a class by Greg Beal on how to interpret the Bible, and one of the ways you do so is to look at the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. And I had never—I mean, I grew up in a conservative home. I went to conservative schools, and the way 
that the Bible was presented there at Wheaton, specifically under guys like Greg Beal and Sam Storms and Scott Haifman and guys like that, uh, just reading the Bible holistically, which is a new, radical, fresh way of understanding not just the Old Testament, but the New Testament. And that really sort of set me on a trajectory. And it made me go back and think about things that I had learned growing up as a kid and in high school and in junior high and looking at the same text again and again. And that really sort of set me on the trajectory. Then my dissertation was in that vein and all my work sort of flows out of that. So that's that's kind of where I'm coming from. I, I really get excited in the classroom and at Sunday school to talk about the Bible, talk about how it's connected and how it's a wealth. And, and the more and more you read it, I think the more exciting and, and God-glorifying it is. Well, I think that's something that listeners would pick up from reading your numerous works. So obviously, we'll talk a little bit about the image of God and biblical theology today, but a number of your works that you've edited, that you've contributed to, or that you've written yourself, you can see that kind of zeal for Scripture, a passion for learning more about God's Word. And I know I appreciate that, and so thank you for that. I know for some listeners who may not have a theological background or have theological training, some of these terms like systematic theology, biblical theology, sometimes just understanding the method um, and how all of this is organized is really helpful. And I've noticed that with my students as well, especially early on in Bible college. They don't always kind of understand how this enterprise fits together and how all of these disciplines are related Uh, So for listeners' sake, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship as well as some of the differences between fields like systematic theology, biblical theology, historical theology, and how that kind of relates to biblical studies in general? Yeah, so I mean, everything is kind of cut up into all these different fields, all these different avenues. When your general layperson, your average layperson, when they think Bible theology I suspect most of the time they are thinking in systematic categories. When I use the word systematic theology, the phrase systematic theology is how the Bible is logically presented, how we go about talking about the nature of God, the nature of Scripture, the nature of man, the nature of creation, these sorts of things. We present them in a very logical way, in a very sort of, think of it in terms of a synthetic arrangement of material. And it is logically arranged, it's reasonably arranged, it's how how the church has reflected for 2,000 years at some level. When we talk about historical theology, well, that's a little bit easier for us to get at first blush. That is, we simply trace how the church thinks about these categories of theology and thinks about the categories in the Bible and particular texts and particular doctrines. So it's a much much more historical enterprise. When we get into the field known as biblical theology, that becomes even more ambiguous because in some sense, the church has always been doing biblical theology. Well, biblical theology is simply the study of how the Bible unfolds. It's very organic, and what's attractive about it is that it tends to use words that are Bible words. I think what's difficult, what makes versions of systematic theology inaccessible to most people, is that words, such as, and we need these words, but they can be off-putting. Divine simplicity, for example, it's not in the Bible. It's a very biblical conception. The word trinity, very, very biblical, but yet that word is not found. 
hamartiology, uh, pneumatology. So all of these massive categories that theologians talk about the Bible, a lot of them are synthetic. A lot of them have a lot of baggage to them, and it needs to be that way. Biblical theology, on the other hand, tends to be in, in tighter or in more intimate contact with the Bible itself. And so it likes to use more biblical language when talking about the scriptures, talking about how things work. Secondly, it's a study of how the Bible itself unfolds. So typically we think of in creation, fall, redemption, new creation, these sort of this in other words, it's it's very story focused. And that is massive. That makes studying the Bible, I think in my in my estimation, easier. I think what people struggle with is they take a class on theology or they hear a theologian speak and it's or they read a book on theology and it sounds very attractive and it makes sense. It's logically coherent. But when you open the Bible, you start to see like, wait a minute, where where are these categories at work? Whereas with biblical theology, I think you can simply open the Bible and you're like, okay, now I'm starting to see the pieces fit together. That's how I began. And really, biblical theology, and this is really in an, another conversation, but the, really a terrific conversation would be the rise of biblical theology. Why in the last three decades? We, I think we could, we could measure some things, and I think we could, we could outline some factors, but there really has been an absolutely resurgence of biblical theology in the last two decades and really three and four decades. But I mean, now, I mean, just look at the publishers, whether it's Zondervan, Crossway, IVP, Baker, PNR. I mean, everything is, it is really there out, out front and center in so many things. And people are eating it up, especially within the Reformed world, Southern Baptist world. It's the thing. And I don't see it slowing down at all. I mean, I, I'm attached to multiple projects and more and more. I mean, it's just, it, it, it really is um, a very exciting time to study the Bible. And one of those reasons is because biblical theology is really starting to mature. It's reaching a state of maturation. Yeah, and that's one of the things that's really encouraging to me is um, I'm a Christian ethicist by training. A lot of what we talk about here on the podcast is Christian ethics. We've seen a similar kind of resurgence in studying Christian ethics, even within Protestant evangelical circles, as well as public theology that really didn't become its own discipline per se, even though the church has long studied the relationship of the church and the state and social ethics and kind of living our faith out in public. Even public theology has kind of seen a resurgence in the last few decades. And so, as you said, I think it's a really exciting time to be studying the scriptures and seeing how the scriptures apply to all of our life. Well, Dr. Glad, I really have enjoyed this new series that you're an editor of with IVP. It's a kind of a look at biblical theology. It's Essential Studies in Biblical Theology, and you have the first volume in the series. So I wanted to hear a little bit about the background of this series. How did it come about, kind of your involvement in it, and what do you all hope to accomplish in a series like this? Yeah, that's a great question. So I had this idea a couple years ago, maybe more than a couple years ago now. I first thought about Don Carson's series that we call it the NSBT or the New Studies in Biblical Theology. It's silver, the silver series. It's on number, it's in the 50s now. It's it's absolutely massive and it's not slowing down at all. Don just told me not too long ago that there's like, I don't know, six to nine more in the hopper, like that. That series is just absolutely exploding. So I thought about that series, and I thought how in that particular series, it's 
It can be Jeremiah. It can be Jonah. It can be uh, holiness. In other words, it's sort of all things related to biblical theology. And then I was like, well, maybe there's room for doing a series on, instead of doing 50 or 100 themes, what if we just did 10 themes on the major themes of the Bible, and each of those volumes goes Old Testament specific. It starts in Genesis, and hopefully it ends in Revelation. So you really get a nice kind of robust Genesis to Revelation unpacking, and you get 10, which I call essential themes, that if you if you can understand these, how these 10 themes work together, I think you've got a pretty good handle on how the Bible is really put together. Uh, so I pitched it to Crossway. They liked it, and it just started. So I then wrote the first volume, Adam and Israel to the Church of Biblical Theology, the People of God, in which I attempt to sort of cast the entire project. And I pull together a bunch of themes, but I really focus on how image of God and Israel and the people of God and Christ, how he is Adam, how he is Israel, how a great deal of the Bible is built on that particular topic. We do have the 10th volume is written by, or will be written by, Kathy McDowell, who teaches at Grove City in Charlotte. And she is doing one on, particularly on idolatry and image. Her, She's doing more with idols. I do a little bit with idols, but she is exploring in more detail. So you're going to kind of see that theme crop up again in the 10th and final volume. So yeah, so it's been, it has been so much fun. I just read uh, Jeff Brannon's volume on resurrection. That volume will come out in the fall. Desmond Alexander has a volume coming out uh, next month or March, I believe, on priest and priesthood. It's a terrific volume. And then Edward Clink or Mickey Clink just gave me his manuscript on creation a couple of days ago. So I've got to read that one. But really, I mean, it's it's almost done at this point. It's hard to believe that we just have a couple volumes left. Steve Dempster is going to submit his soon. His is on king and kingship. So I'm really excited. I'm thrilled with the way that this has worked out. I'm glad people are reading them. I mean, I'm, I'm excited about the Bible, and I think this series kind of reflects that excitement as well. Yeah, that's one of the things that's been kind of encouraging, especially within the Christian publishing world, is seeing series like this. So kind of an essential studies on this or introductions to various things. Crossway has one on systematic theology. Uh, we have one that we haven't talked a lot about on the podcast yet, but a forthcoming series on Christian ethics, kind of explaining kind of the basics of Christian ethics that um, I'm co-editing uh, with Ben Mitchell. And so there's a lot of these series that are coming out that I think are really helpful because they give people kind of an on-ramp to some of these bigger concepts and these bigger themes, and then they can continue into them. And to that end, I know before we jump into the image of God uh, stuff specifically, early on in your volume, you kind of set the stage a little bit, talking about the differences between covenant theology and dispensational theology, uh, which in this in this discussion, you see kind of conversations surrounding the relation of the covenants, how the Old and New Testament relate to one another and fit together, and also the identity of Israel. Can you kind of give a brief orientation to those kind of concepts of covenant theology and dispensational theology and help listeners kind of understand as they go into some of these conversations about biblical theology, some of the big questions and debates? 
Yeah. So it's, that's really a question of, Hey, have Ben, how did you grow up? As I referenced at the beginning of this podcast, you asked, you know, how did, how did I get here? Well, I grew up in a very dispensational home. My parents were taught that I went to the master's college where that was reasserted. So I grew up waiting, you know, being rapture ready to put it to you like that. I was, it was a very, the rapture was a legitimate option in my daily life. I watched Thief in the Night a thousand times. I, you know, Tim LaHaye, I, I don't think I've read any of his books, but I was very familiar with that idea. So I, I grew up reading the Bible as though God really, really loves Israel and he likes me. He loves me too, but he really loves Israel. And that the Bible is focused on, largely focused on God's work with Israel. And, in, and so in a dispensational world, the Bible really begins with Abraham. In Genesis 1 through 11, I mean, that's kind of just a prologue to Abraham. It really, you can really start to see the plan really starts there in Genesis 12. So that's how I had read the Bible my entire life. But then when I kept studying the Bible and you know read all these terrific books, I learned that, wait a minute, wait a minute, Israel is part of God's people. And once you make the connection between Adam and Israel, once you learn that actually God's people starts not at Sinai, but in Eden, that's the beginning of God's people. That's the beginning of the story, not there uh, in the Exodus. And so once you see the importance of Genesis 1 to 3, and then on the New Testament side of things, where the Gospels are at pains to show that Jesus is Adam and Israel. And why is that? Because that's the story of the Bible. It's so focused on him. And so then once you read, then you, then once you start to put these pieces together, you realize, like, wait a minute, New Testament authors, this is fantastic. New Testament authors will tell these churches, hey, churches, go and do this. Why? And then they'll quote Old Testament texts about Israel and they'll put them right on top of the church or apply them to the church. And you're like, wait a minute. It's because the church is part of true Israel. It doesn't replace Israel, but is part of true Israel. In the New Testament, just read the book of First Peter. I mean, it is stunning how many Old Testament texts that in the Old Testament refer to Israel now are placed upon the church. And so when you start reading the Bible holistically like this, you start to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a different paradigm at work. And so traditionally, that uh, that alternate paradigm has been called covenant theology. That's the label we give to God's, the way God relates to his people is through a covenant. So it, in tracing God's dealings, God's covenantal dealings through his people, we start in the garden. And it really consummates in the new creation in Revelation 21 and 22. So those are the, really the two different ways of reading the Bible. It's not, it really, and this is what people fail to understand often, that dispensationalism reads, reads the Bible one way and covenant theology reads the Bible another way. These are two different ways of reading massive portions of the Bible. It's not simply just a couple texts here and there. Like these are two drastically ways of approaching the text. And I think what's happening, and, and Jason, you would, I mean, I would like to hear 
you know, from you in this regard, but I really think what's happening now in Southern Baptist circles is that there is a resurgence of reading the Bible holistically, and there there's now an alternate, you know, uh, framework put together by guys like Gentry and Wellum of progressive covenantalism, right? Where you want to keep sort of Baptist distinctives, but yet you're, and it's because dispensationalism just, it just doesn't work. And so you don't want to go full on covenantal, but you don't want to be dispensational. So they're trying to come up with a sort of a third way. And I, this is, I mean, it is, I would really like to take a survey. I wish I could take a survey of, you know, just evangelicalism, conservative evangelicalism in the West and see how many people are dispensationalists. I, I, I'm sure there, there are still some, of course, but I think it's waning. And I think publishers are realizing that and so. No, no, I think that's really helpful. One thing I want to ask you just real quick is, can you define dispensationalism or a dispensation? I think sometimes there's a lot of questions surrounding what that is. So how would you define that? Dispensationalism is just simply reading how God works in different phases or how the Bible, yeah, God works with different people in different ways throughout the Bible. So there are, you know, so there are debates. There are five dispensations, 10 dispensations, seven, I think is a common one, seven dispensations. So God relates to people different ways. What that means is this, here's what difference does it make. It really comes down, we can really see it very clearly in the New Testament where it's, oh, God is now working with the church in a unique way. And once he's finished with the church, the church is then raptured, and then God will turn to his original plan and now start working with Israel as he promised he would do in the Old Testament. So really what you then have, you then have the church functionally, and they say that it's a parenthesis, that it's it's an it's an aberration uh, really in the Bible storyline. Whereas covenant theology says, no, the church is not an aberration. This is the fruition. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament expectations. So it's just a, it's a massive way of rereading text. Yeah, and I think you're exactly right, especially, and you know, in my context as a, a Southern Baptist, a Reformed Southern Baptist, there is kind of a shift in the way that we're talking about how the Scripture fits together, the old and the new, and kind of the this, this storyline of Scripture, even seeing kind of a re-emphasis of the meta-narrative that starting with creation, fall, redemption, new creation, we're seeing that kind of play out in things. And I think there are some, obviously, we would differ— and, Convictionally Baptist, there's some covenantal theology distinctives that I wouldn't be able to subscribe to as a Baptist. But by and large, I think the way of reading Scripture, there's a lot of similarities. And that's where I'm excited to see a lot of work come out, not only from our schools, um, but also our institutions and publishers kind of helping people navigate some of these big questions because, you know, Baptists have long been a people of the book. We want to study the Scriptures. We want to know the Scriptures better. And we also have to have the ability to say, we may not always get it right. Um, and so we need one another in that to help us see our blind spots and kind of navigate it. I know one of the fundamental questions that at least I'm asked pretty often as a Christian ethicist is about the image of God. And obviously you spend a considerable amount of time in this whole volume kind of casting a biblical theology of the people of God, really focusing on the image of God. And I think that question of what it means to be human um, at least from an ethical perspective, is one of the most important questions of our day, and I think really the defining question of our day, because we have questions of sexuality and gender, technology, bioethics, and more of there's increasingly challenges to what does it mean to be human? And there's a lot of question marks about that. But the scriptures are very clear 
uh, we hear about that we're created in the Imago Dei or the image of God. So I want us to drill down a little bit on that. What is the Imago Dei? And what does that mean about how we as human beings uniquely relate to God as his image bearers? So it's going to do two things. And I love this language. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm borrowing some of it from others like uh, Middleton, but I like the, so it's a, it's a two-pronged notion. So I like the idea of it's refraction, you know, like you learn in physics, how light refracts through things. So you've got, you know, when a, a prism separates the various colors in the light spectrum. So you have red, blue, whatever. There's a refraction that takes place. So being in God's image means that we refract him. What that means is this. It's not hard to understand. We do what God does, simply. So God is in heaven. He rules over the created order from his heavenly throne. And we do that, but we do that on earth. Now, we are not identical to God, but we imitate his function. So what is, he rules in the heavens. We rule over the earth. He is the source of truth. We communicate truth. He is surrounded by his glory and his light. And what do we do? We are in charge of preserving and mediating that same glory and light as well. So we, so God is, God is the ultimate. Jesus is the ultimate prophet, priest, and kings. And we are little prophet, priests, and kings. So we, we do simply what he does. And he's, he creates ex nihilo. Well, we create too, but not ex nihilo. So there's an imitation, there's an imitation there that we do what God does. That's very clear in the Genesis narrative. But there's also a second dimension of being in God's image, and that is reflecting. So not only not only do we refract what he does, do we imitate what he does on the earth? We actually we mirror God's behavior back to him. It goes back. And so when we behave like we're supposed to behave, God sees his images reflecting him. Do you see that? So there's both reflection and there's refraction. Uh, Images simply do, images simply imitate. And God, if you notice, very interesting, only God is the only one that's allowed to make images. We don't, believers, we don't make images. Unbelievers don't make images. You're not supposed to. Only the creator can actually generate an image. Image bearers cannot create other image bearers. Only God can create image bearers because he himself is God. And so once we start to put these pieces together, we realize that we're working with something called the creator-creature distinction. And so that is really underpinning a great deal of this. Kind of digging in on that then, one of the questions that I get asked pretty regularly is when we talk about the image of God, obviously you think of like Carl Henry or Herman Bavink about how the image of God is central to not only the theological enterprise, um, but also the eth- our ethics of Christian ethics. It's based on the unique dignity and value and worth of every single human being as created in God's image. There are some who push back on that as this kind of central theme not just from a biblical theological standpoint, but even ethical, to say that the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about the image of God. I've heard one ethic, Christian ethicist say it's a pretty underdeveloped doctrine. Uh, so you you hear about it in Genesis 1 and 2, maybe Genesis 3. You hear a little throughout, kind of here and there. You might see something in Psalm 139, maybe 1 Corinthians 11, 7, James 3, 9. But there isn't kind of often this overarching view or a biblical theology in some sense. So 
Can you help us to understand a little bit about how the image of God or the Imago Dei plays out through kind of the large swath of scripture, how this is kind of one of the major themes of biblical theology? Right. So there are different ways to answer that idea, the, the answer that criticism. One is simply the word concept fallacy. Just because we don't have the word image in a text doesn't mean that that text is not talking about image. You can have the concept of image and yet lack the term image. So it's a word concept fallacy. You know, in other words, the concept of image is all over the place in scripture. In fact, I would even argue this, and I I don't think I'm being a maximalist here. Every time you have a person mentioned, which is in most biblical texts, image of God is there in some fashion. For example, marriage is hugely important today, and it was hugely important in the ancient world. The marriage is very much tied to the image of God. In fact, once you, the way that I read the covenant of works is the way that I define it, it's Genesis 1.28, Genesis 2.15-17, and Genesis 2.24. Marriage is a part of that covenant of works, the way that I am reading Genesis 1 and 2 there. Once you tighten, once you join image of God with marriage, then every time in the Bible you have marriage, you have image of God. What's amazing about that is that I don't think I'm making that up because there are actually texts that do that very thing. They start to work with image and marriage together. Well, it's because it goes back to the garden. These are natural. They they are naturally connected. That's sort of the, you know, I, I, I would start to pursue those angles. Another thing that I would do is, in fact, I've been reading through Ezekiel in the mornings, and I'm struck by how much the prophet Ezekiel brings Genesis 1 to 3. He's always talking about Genesis 1 to 3. He has such awareness of the creation narrative, and he's bringing it to bear on his various oracles. Prophets do that all the time. In other words, in the Psalms, whether it's Psalm 8, Psalm 139, a great deal of the Psalms actually go back to Genesis 1 to 3. Once you start to see how the Old Testament is deeply rooted in Genesis 1 to 3, well, of course you're going to see image of God everywhere. So really, one of the ways that we can do that, and I do this in my book, and scholars do it all over the place, is they start to see the similarities between God creating Adam and Eve in the garden and creating Israel at Sinai. And these parallels between those two groups, it's far more than coincidental. I mean, it really is. God is doing the same thing at Sinai that he did there in Eden, the garden. Once you start to put that together, you start to see, wait a minute, Israel is actually a corporate Adam. And if he is a corporate Adam, then that makes so much sense of what Jesus is doing in the Gospels as both Adam and Israel. Do you see, Adam? what, what, what can be confusing in the Gospels is that there's an oscillation between Adam and Israel, and Jesus is both simultaneously because they're both held on trajectory of each other. So those are the kinds of things that we can pursue. So then how does this concept of the Imago Dei or the image of God as the people of God, we're all created in this image to refract and reflect him, how is that then fulfilled in Christ? Because we see in scripture that you know, Christ is the perfect image of God. Um, so how, how does that concept then fit into seeing kind of the Christological interpretation almost of the image of God? Um, how do we see Christ as the perfect image of God and how do those relate? 
Right. So, yeah, so this is this is where we could bring ethics certainly into view, but I'll, I'll mention one on the other side of it. So one of the things that's required of Adam that's very explicit in 128 is that he has to subdue creation. Adam and Eve, they have to subdue the created order. One of those things very clearly is subduing evil. This is 3.1. What happens? The serpent enters into the garden. Immediately, the expectation is that Adam must subdue that creature, and he does not. So what we get then in Genesis 3 is God says, okay, since Adam and Eve failed to subdue the serpent, I'm going to send a pristine Adam figure who will subdue the serpent. So in the life of Christ, what do you have? This is fascinating. All three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John does it differently. He works on a more cosmic level, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what do they do? Jesus' first task after he's anointed as king in Adam and Israel, after he's anointed Israel, what does he do? He conquers the serpent. That's his first. I mean, in other words, he is fulfilling Genesis 1 and 2 there, and 3, of course, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And so, in other words, subduing evil is a massive part of being in God's image. You want to talk about ethics? (laughs) Subduing evil is kind of a big deal. (laughs) Whether it's sin, any kind of sin or addiction or whatever, subduing evil is part of what we were supposed to do, what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. They failed it, so Jesus does it. And then now, because we are in Christ, we now have that power to subdue evil. That's kind of a, you know, I think I can tie that to ethics pretty well. In fact, at the end of Romans, Paul actually makes, there's, he, he makes this hermeneutical move and you read it and you're like, wait a minute, I don't, I don't think Genesis 3 reads quite like that. But what he does here in Romans 16, 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Your feet? I thought this was, I thought it was messianic feet. Now it's the church's feet. So do you see that move that he makes? That move means that because the church, because this Roman church is so joined to Christ, that Christ's success over the serpent is now also realized in the church. And that move there, that means that we are now, because the church is in the restored image of God, uh, we now have the power to subdue evil in the serpent. So those are the kinds of things that we could bring to bear as far as ethics. And, we, you know, we could talk for hours and hours about that sort of thing. Yeah, and that's one of the things, obviously, we have we are short on time in some sense. Uh, there's just so much that we could unpack here. Uh, one of the things that I want to do as we kind of wrap up our, our conversation today um, is kind of some recommended resources. I think, obviously, we've bitten off a lot in this last 40 minutes or so, talking about the image of God, the relationship of covenant and dispensational theology, and also getting into biblical theology and various topics. What are some resources that you would recommend listeners, if they're first time or maybe a little bit more, a little bit further along in their studies, some helpful resources specifically kind of tying into the image of God and specifically this understanding of Christ as the prophet, priest, and king? Yeah, so Anthony Hokema, uh, Calvin, he wrote a classic work on the image of God. I think that's the best. I think that's the best that I've read. I haven't read it cover to cover, but that's the best that I've interacted with. 
that I've seen, and I know Bob Inc. and those guys, you know, the reformed reformed systematics is a terrific job and and you're gonna get into all that. But as far as I, I really think that Hokama is able to say things very clearly in a in a biblical theological way that you're not gonna find elsewhere. I, I, I think if you go there, I'm not quite sure you need to go elsewhere. I, I think he's I think he's pretty much the one to go to. I'm really interested I would like to write a book on heaven, on the new creation. Uh, my father passed away last year, and it's made me reflect more on this idea of what does it mean to be in God's image in heaven, in the new creation. When I mean heaven, I don't mean now, when you know the invisible presence of God. I mean in the future, in the new heavens and new earth, uh, in the eternal state. I'm very interested in the idea of what does it mean to be in God's image in the eternal state, to just put it differently. When Christ returns and he restores all things, he creates anew, what do our lives look like in this new creation? We are still part of, we are still in God's image and ethics are still attached to that. And we are prophet, priests, and kings in that environment. And so I'm very much interested on refining this idea of the, the our future existence in God's image forever and ever. I mean, it's kind of a big, it's kind of a big deal and it's a big question but surprisingly, not many go there. You know who does talk about C.S. Lewis talks a little bit about it, and so does N.T. Wright. Uh, both of those explore a little bit on that topic. But I'm really, you know, I'm really kind of interested in that long. Uh, maybe that, maybe I'll do that in the next couple of years. But uh, yeah, that's something that I hope our listeners will think about, will reflect on, taking the Bible's doctrine of the image of God. How does it apply today for ethics, and then how will it apply? in the future. Yeah. No, I think that's a worthwhile enterprise and I'd encourage you in that. Um, I think that there's much needed reflection and scholarship in that area specifically, because I think that's a big question. Uh, we often think about the here and now, but we'd al- also think about what's to come um, and in Christ's return and what that's going to look like. Well, Dr. Glad, I, I really appreciate your scholarship, the kind of pastoral heart, the way that you navigate, the way that you teach and write. Um, I really mu- I very much appreciate your work, and I also appreciate you taking the time to join us today in the Digital Public Square to talk about these important issues. Yeah, sure thing, Jason. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule. I know you're busy, and you have a lot going on. you got two little kids, so I, I appreciate that. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Glad and learn more about his work as well as the recommended resources we talked about in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology today, as well as to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hainer. Technical production provided by Owens Productions. It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you and I hope you have a great week.